Why did the United States not bomb the tracks to Auschwitz? For many, this was FDR's most unforgivable crime. In this episode, we're going to look at the historical elements behind FDR's decision not to bomb the tracks. Did FDR even make a decision? Why did the United States not take a more aggressive military role in terms of intervention for the plight of the Jews in Auschwitz? As always, please like and share this podcast or leave us a comment or question. Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. I'm Rabbi Nachum Meth. So by April of, of 44, these two escapees, they published this report talking about the gassing, the crematorium. And by, it took a little bit of time for this report to actually slowly creep its way to get to the people that needed to see it. So it wouldn't be till mid-June of 44. Mid-June of 44 is where it makes its way to the War Refugee Board. If you recall from last week, the War Refugee Board was established under the auspices of John Pelly, who was, it was really uh, an inspiration of Henry Morgenthau Jr., who really pushes FDR to take a little bit, not a little bit, to take a much more aggressive role in rescue efforts. And FDR agrees to put together the War Refugee Board. We talked about a lot of their activities last week, how they they were influential. Uh, estimates will tell you that they, they themselves claim to have saved about 75,000 Jews. Uh, it probably was more, if you include indirect salvation, probably closer to 200,000 Jews. And the War Refugee Board mainly focused on working with other countries and what we called the heroes of, the, of World War II, the hero diplomats who would try to figure out ways to get Jews to third part, to, to safe havens, the countries that would take them on, you know, temporarily. The Auschwitz Protocols, this report from the, the Wetzlar-Verber report, makes its way to the War Refugee Board um, beginning in June. So if we just start our timeline of when did the United States really start actively thinking about, you know, Auschwitz as a specific target, what exactly was going on there, what it looked like, maps, details of if you wanted any kind of plan. It was really beginning in theory in June of 44. Really, April of 44. If you even go back one month earlier, and in May of 44, Rabbi Michal Dov Weissman, who is a, a, you know, a tragic figure in Jewish history, but Michal Dov Weissman was the Russian yeshiva, was the head of the yeshiva, a yeshiva called Nitra, the Nitra yeshiva. He's a tragic figure in that he, his wife, his family were all killed in Auschwitz. He was Hungarian. Um, he actually was one of the few people, he escaped from a death, from, a, from the trains, from the cattle cars, he had, was able to smuggle a, a little saw uh, on the train, he cut out a little um, hole in the train, he actually jumped out of a moving train, he like, broke several bones, and he lived, he was part of the, the, the underground, um, his family would end up being killed, um, he would eventually resettle in the United States, in, in uh, I think in Rockland County, uh, he would re- restart the Nitra Yeshiva, and remarry, but he, he was a broken man and he would die, um, you know, 10, 15 years after the war. But Rabbi Weissmandel, um, he also starts sounding the alarm. He is part of the underground resistance. And he hears and the, the rumors are, are trickling down that Hungarian Jewry, Hungary had been kind of been working together and, and was kind of given quasi independence by Hitler. Um, but Hitler had decided at that point that he was going to liquidate Hungarian Jewry. So 
uh, Weiss models, one of the leavers of the underground, smuggles out a letter pleading for help. And he was one of the first to, to directly bring up the idea of bombing the, uh, the railway lines. He gave specific locations, what he felt would be strategic locations, that bombing the railway lines would be effective. Um, he even wrote, um, writing in anguish, they ask, uh, and you are brothers in all free countries, and you governments of all free lands, where are you? What are you doing to hinder the carnage that is going on now? It was part of his letter that he sent out you know, to the masses. So already in May and June of 44, we start hearing you know, people being a little bit vocal, letters, reports, and suggestions of bombings um, by mid-May. As well, uh, Rav Sternbach of the Vat Hatzala. We talked about the Vat Hatzala was a smaller group. Vat Hatzala means the, the rescue organization. It was an Orthodox group. Uh, sent out pleas for bombing the rail lines. Um, for unknown reasons, these messages were blocked. This was part of the, he was part of the Vat Hatzala out in Europe. He was, uh, I think he was out in Switzerland. And these messages were, were trying to be sent, but they'd been stifled. Uh, we mentioned Gerhard Wiegner, if you recall, the Jewish World, World Jewish Congress, who was out in, um, he was also in Switzerland. And he had started mentioning um, suggestions in mid-June, sending out pleas for bombing. Um, and as well, Rav Yaakov Rosen, Rosenheim of the Aguda, again, another Orthodox group, uh, appeals to the, he appealed directly to the War Refugee Board, again, in, in mid-June, June 18th, actually. You know, in mid-June, you have a couple of these groups and leaders specifically reaching out to, to the War Refugee Board. We've got to bomb the tracks. We've got to act. We've got to bomb the rail lines. On June 24th, 21st, uh, John Pelly, who we mentioned, he's the head of the WRB, the World Refugee Board. He brings the idea up with someone who I think doesn't receive the infamy that he, had, that he should, a fellow named John McCloy. Uh, John McCloy is the Assistant Secretary of War. He's under Henry Stimson. Henry Stimson is the Secretary of War. John McCloy is the Assistant Secretary. The structure of the War Refugee Board, the WRB, who was actually it was directly under Morgenthau, part of the Treasury Department. It was structured as such that it was supposed to consult with Treasury, State, and the War Departments. It would be a problem. In theory, by the executive order that FDR put together, in theory, those branches of the government, those branches of the executive branch, were to take orders to some degree, or certainly supposed to be, they couldn't just blow off the WRB. They were responsible uh, to answer to them. So John, so, so John Pelly reaches out to, the, to the, the way the channels of communication. It went through the assistant secretary of war, John McCloy. John McCoy, I think, is a terrible, virulent anti-Semite. And he's going to be the real villain of this story. Just as an aside, if you recall, one of the, one of the darkest chapters, one of the greatest black eyes in American history was the, the uh, treatment that Japanese Americans received during World War II. You may or not, not be aware, most Japanese Americans, if you were an American citizen of Japanese or, uh, uh, origin, you spent most of, the, of World War II in internment camps right here, out in Arizona, uh, not too far away. They were all locked up and put in concentration camps. I always forget, I, I apologize, his real name, Sulu, 
Remember from Star Trek, right? He's Asian. He's, he was born or was raised, his early memories were being, were in a, in a concentration camp. The United States ran concentration camps. Our government, uh, something that we don't, I don't know why history doesn't talk about. Hundreds of thousands of Japanese were, were, were kicked off of their property, were rounded up and lived in concentration camps under deplorable, it wasn't horrific like, like Nazi World War II, but these were not great uh, you know, conditions. Um, and they spent years there. Um, a lot of this was the great thinking and planning of our good friend, John McCoy. So he's not, I don't know why he's not as villainized as much as he should be. <clears throat> On June 24th, matter of days, if not a day, after receiving this inquiry from Kelly of why don't we consider bombing the tracks, so McCloy writes back, um, going through the, opera- the OPD, the Operations Division of the War Department, essentially saying, we can't. Why not? OPD ruled against the proposed bombing, stating that the suggestion was impracticable because it, couldn't, it could be executed only by the diversion of considerable air support essential to the success of our forces and now engaged in decisive operations. This is going to be the running theme. You know, we'd love to, but we can't. Our, all of our air power is being used up in other essential things. Our job is to win the war, not for rescue, you know, to rescue some, you know, something has no direct war aim. All of our assets, all of our resources are tied up for other causes. Um, Response to Rabbi Rosenheim's rail bombing uh, request. He responds back. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. It's just you see the, the same theme in a different response. It is not contemplated that units of the armed forces will be employed for the purpose of rescuing victims of any enemy oppression unless such rescues are the direct result of military operations conducted with the objective of defeating the armed forces of the enemy. A similar vein, the War Department is of the opinion that the suggested air operation is impracticable for the reason that it could be executed only by diversion of considerable air support essential to the success of our forces now engaged in decisive operations. The War Department fully appreciates the humanitarian importance of the suggested operation. However, after due consideration of the problem, it is considered that the most effective relief to victims of any per- enemy persecution is the early defeat of the Axis, an undertaking to which we must devote every re- resource at our disposal. Now, at first glance, it sounds like a very reasonable argument. You know, humanitarian crises are terrible, but we're trying to win a war and we're in danger of losing the war. And we've got limited resources. We need every bomber, every fighter, every airman, every ounce of gasoline to win the war when we're thin. That's the best way to save the victims. And that would be the, the, the call and cry of the War Department. Um, this created a certain tug of war between the War Refugee Board and the War Department. If you recall, up until this point, the real villain in terms of the, of the American government had always been the State Department. They were the ones you know, not allowing immigration. Now it shifts for the last few months to the Department of War, the War Department, um, this tug of war that we, that we pointed out. You know, who's in charge, the War Refugee Board or the, um, or, or the state or, or the War Department? Um, they would write again. 
The hook in the executive order, you know, right, talking about who's got authority, the hook in the executive order is paragraph three, the section that charged the war state and treasury departments with executing the war, war refugee board programs. Obviously, there will be continuing pressure from some quarters to enlarge the sphere of this thing. I think that we should make our position fairly inelastic. That was, the, our position is fairly inelastic. We've got no wiggle room here, says McCoy. We love to help, but we can't. Our arms are tied. And that would be time and time again, not time and time again, that would be McCloy and the War Department's uh, position. Um, in July of 44, so up until now, really the main arguments have been, let's bomb the railway lines. Beginning in July, um, a similar argument started, started trickling its way to the War Refugee Board and to other agencies, which was don't just bomb the, the rail lines to Auschwitz, but let's bomb Auschwitz itself. The gas chambers, the crematoria, bomb the actual um, death camp directly. These calls came from uh, the War Refugee Board itself put, put forward the suggestion. Um, the Czechoslovakian government, if you recall, early on in the war, Czechoslovakia is overridden by the Germans early on in the war, actually before the war even begins. And Germany uh, and the, the, the government of Czechoslovakia, many of the government uh, would, would actually go to England and be in exile. So the exiled government, they were actually one of the, one of the early, you know, in July, they put forward the suggestion uh, and recommendation of bombing Auschwitz. Um, we talked about Peter Bergson, if you recall last week, Peter Bergson, he was an agitator. Um, he was one of the few Jewish agitators uh, who drove Stephen Wise batty. You know, Stephen Wise hated him because Bergson was a real agitator. So he was one of the ones who really put the idea, um, he, he promoted the idea as well, uh, as well as some voices within the World Jewish Con Congress. But again, the same response came back from the War Department. It's a great idea. It's an interesting idea. We've given it tons and tons of consideration, but we just can't. All of our, all of our resources are tied up. Um, where was Morgenthau in all this? Okay, Henry Morgenthau is the head of treasury. So he is not really involved in the actual suggestions. We're going to talk about this in just a moment. Who knew about these suggestions of bombing railway lines and bombing, um, and bombing the actual death camp? So far, it's been War Refugee Board and people like John McCloy. I would call them mid-level, mid to high-level officials, but maybe you would call them mid-level officials within the government. And that's a very important point. Let's hold that thought for just a moment. Um, September of 44, the last enclave of Jews in Budapest, the, the word came, the last real enclave of Jews of, of any significant number left in Budapest were to be deported. And uh, Rabbi Kalmanovich, again, one of the heads of the Vat Hatzalah, the, the, the relief organization, emergency relief organization of Vat Hatzalah. Um, and again, he's the Orthodox rabbi. You know, when he hears that, the, you know, the, the, this final last wave of deportations was scheduled, you know, he starts working the phones on Shabbat, on Shabbos, Orthodox Jews myself. I don't touch my phone on Shabbos. Real blessing. I don't have to worry about Facebook, Twitter, you know, anything like that. Don't use the phones on Shabbos, right? Obviously, matters of endangerment of life, you, you pick up your phone. And again, we have, there are many stories of many of the, the Gedol, many of the leaders of Vat HaTzalah who are all Orthodox rabbis who look the part, long beard, the whole thing, you know, driving on Shabbos, picking up, you know, working the phones on Shabbos 
to try to do any, any effort of rescue that was available. He starts working the phones, um, you know, to try to see in September, is there anything that could be done, any pressure uh, in terms of bombing the camps to, you know, to save lives. Uh, he petitions DC. And again, um, in November, the, and again, same response. In November of 44, in November of 44, the full text of that verb, the verbal Wetzler report with all the information, the full text, it's hard to understand why, but the full extent of the report makes it what, what took so long, but for whatever reason, there was a little bit of a delay of a few months. The full text of the horrors and the details, the plans of what was going on in Auschwitz finally makes its way to John Pelly's office. And he makes yet another petition to, um, to the OPD, to the, to the Operations Division of the War Department. And again, the same kind of uh, response. The target Auschwitz you know, is beyond the maximum range of medium bombardment, dive bombers and fighter bombers located in the United Kingdom, France, or Italy. Um, this is a little bit of a different argument, but uh, McCloy says, we, we just can't. It's, it's not even militarily feasible. Um, that last argument is wholly inaccurate. It's absolutely a lie. It was completely inaccurate. Um, it was completely a fabrication, um, which we'll talk about in a moment. But at this point in November, um, McCloy says, it's impressive. We can't even do it. Even if we want to do anything, we couldn't. It'd be impossible. It's out of the distance of our bombers. What can we do? Um, after November, there are no real major uh, petitions about bombings that would make its way to, um, you know, to the War Refugee Board or to any of the major, um, any, any major branch of government. It really be by November of 44, uh, we don't really have the, the historical record doesn't really show any major petitions. So you have in total, you know, maybe a dozen or so petitions and suggestions to different governmental agencies, mainly going through the WRB, of bombing either their tracks or bombing Auschwitz with the same refrain, usually one of two things, either, you know, the, the, the most common refrain was we don't, we can't spare any resources. And number two, you know, this last refrain would be, it's just, it's not even practicable. It's, it's too far. It's impossible. The end of the timeline is by the end of November of 44, as the Russians are driving farther and farther west, um, the Nazis begin dismantling Auschwitz. Again, Auschwitz is really the only major industrial killing center that's left. And they begin dismantling it by, this, by November time. And the camp falls into the hands of the Russians by January of 45. All the remaining Jews, then included, who's watching, you know, were sent on death marches. They were sent farther back, you know, the other direction, you know, away from the, the incoming Russians. Um, Auschwitz is you know, is captured by the end of January of 45. That's the timeline. We now need to ask the questions. And I want to start with the second point first. Was it impractical, impracticable for the bombers from a military perspective to reach Auschwitz? And the answer is a resounding, of course it was practicable. It absolutely was practicable. It was early. It was, they had, and, and, and I want to 
chat, one of the last chapters of this book, The Abandonment of the Jews. I mean, really, in FDR and the Jews, he also goes through it, not as much detail as Steve Wyman, who's really one of the first real scholars to really dig deep into what happened in the book. Why weren't the tracks bombed? Why wasn't Auschwitz bombed? And he goes through, you know, a line item of what bombers were available. Yeah. Now, keep in mind, timeline. D-Day isn't till June of 44. But however, the Allies had a stronghold in Italy. And yes, from the time they were able to invade, you know, in, in, from France, yes, it would take a little bit of time. But from Italy already, by March of 44, they had bombers well in range um, to, reach, um, to reach all the way to Auschwitz. By March 44, the official United States Air Force history record declares that the Allies had control of the skies in Europe. <clears throat> Excuse me. And by April, the German Air Force was functionally defeated. So, number one, uh, you know, could the bombers have reached it? The answer is absolutely. He goes through miles and distances. Of course they could. That, that's not even, it was a total fabrication. It was completely inaccurate. Um, Really, by May, by May of 44, the Air Force had bases in, so again, this even before D-Day, but the Air Force had bases in Italy that had range and capability. Um, and by January of 44, strategists, and going even farther back in time, as early as January of 44, um, strategists had already declared that many areas around Auschwitz were actually military targets. They'd already started by January, starting to look into what areas would be, be potential uh, military targets. And indeed, and as Ben you know, has mentioned to me several times, being actually there, there were many occasions where the prisoners in Auschwitz thought they were being liberated as they hear the planes flying overhead. From July 7th to November 20th, uh, um, Fleets of 102 to 357 bombers made at least 10 runs on the area. Uh, so, for example, on August 20th, 127 flying fortresses uh, comprised of 100 uh, fighters dropped 1,336 uh, bombs, each weighing 500 pounds, on factories within five miles of the killing zones. Yeah. The IG Farben factory, famously, was one of the, you know, outside the, and Auschwitz was a killing zone, it was also slave labor. And many of the, the, the camps, many of the factories there were a direct part of the, of the Wehrmacht, of the war machine. And, you know, famously, IG Farben, Yamach Shemam, made their, you know, rotten hell. You know, the, the, these were companies that were using slave labor, you know, to build and further the German war effort. And indeed, allies would bomb these places you know, within miles of the death camps. So the notion that it was impracticable, it was a diversion of resource, uh, we didn't have bombers that could reach it is a complete fabrication and lie. And the notion that, um, you know, it would exhaust resources is completely inaccurate because you're flying within, you know, just a few miles of Auschwitz. Um, and that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's an incredibly important point. Would bombings have accomplished anything? Sort of the next one, okay. But would it have done anything? So we have to divide it up, and, and the historians debate parts of this. Let's divide it up between the rail, bombing the rail lines, and bombing Auschwitz itself. In terms of the rail lines, even someone who is as, you know, 
aggressive as Wyman points out, that bombing rail lines are not so simple for a number of reasons. Uh, rail lines, even rail lines that get blown up can easily be repaired. This is something that we learned even in the Civil War. This was a common tactic where, you know, the South would try to, you know, tear up, you know, the supply line, the, the railway lines of the North, and you, you'd feel like you accomplished a lot, but they can be repaired in, in days. Even bridges, bridges which are a lot more complicated, even bridges could be repaired in three to four days. So it's not so simple that blowing up rail lines would have accomplished much. However, the counter to that, the counter argument is okay, but it would have slowed things down. Talmud tells us, you know, saving a life is like saving a world. You know, we tend to like view it as statistics. All right, it only would have slowed down the Nazi killing. It wouldn't have had a major impact. Right, let's say you would have saved a handful of lives. That we discount that. Like, oh, it wouldn't have made a major difference. It would only saved a couple thousand lives. These are a couple thousand. These are my, my, my grandparents, my great-grandparents. These are my aunts and my uncles. That, that, that's a, a terribly callous attitude. Um, it would have indeed, you know, to make any real, you know, measurable difference, a significant difference, it would have required multiple bombings, repeated bombings of the rail lines. You just bomb it once, as I said, it could be rebuilt. For it to really be an effective strategy, you need constant bombardment. Um, that said, from September through October, this wouldn't have been a very big issue um, because it would have easily been assisted by the Russians who were advancing. It wouldn't, you know, that argument of, well, it wouldn't have been so effective because you needed constantly, you know, to, to, to be bombing it, you know, it could have been orchestrated without all that much difficulty as the Russians were advancing. Um, what is a good argument, potentially, is that, okay, but by really by July, by July of 44, the mass deportations from Hungary basically ended. So after July, it, it really wasn't that significant of a, of a strategy. The counter back to that is, yes, but they didn't know that the deportations were going to end. There still were a few hundred, probably about 200,000 Jews still stuck in Hungary. And, you know, their inaction, again, it's callousness. You're right. The mass deportations wouldn't continue, but they didn't know that. And again, it just exposes a, a serious callousness. Um, But what about bombing us? So bombing the rail lines, it is, the historians tend to debate that. Would that have been effective or would it not have been effective? It is, in all fairness, somewhat a debate. I think, you know, I'll tell my personal, I think, of course, yeah, they should have. You know, if it's not as, you know, we're talking about salvation and, and we're not talking about cattle and sheep. We're talking about human life. What about bombing Auschwitz itself? Now, some might argue, again, nowadays we have modern technology, you know, GPS. We've got night vision. Is it really so simple to figure out where exactly Auschwitz, what Auschwitz was and what structures needed to be bombed? And the answer is yes, because as we said, the Auschwitz protocols had already given very detailed um, maps and locations of where the crematoria were, where the gas chambers were, and they were very identifiable. Um, bombing technology was available. It was precise, precision. Bombing was... the for, such a campaign to be effective, the technology was definitely there. Would it have slowed down the mass killings? See a bombing, but would it, would, would it have accomplished anything? And the answer is a resounding yes, it absolutely would have. Because the Germans, if you recall, by this time in the war, they're really, they're, they are in full retreat. They're actively losing the war. 
It took them eight months to build Auschwitz. Really, it took them a lot longer because Auschwitz, it existed, but to turn it into a killing center took about eight months. The Germans did not have eight months left and they had very thin resources. For them to try to rebuild it would have been impossible. They would not have been able to, to rebuild it. One of the counters is, okay, so you blow up the crematoria, you blow up the gas chambers. The Germans still have many other methods of killing. You recall, as we pointed out, the first half of the, of the Holocaust, before industrial killing zones had been created, they had to use the Einsatzgruppen, you know, where it was like, you know, more primitive ways, less industrial ways of killing, you know, bullets, shooting, um, mobile gas units. So the Germans could have gone back, even if Auschwitz went offline. That doesn't mean all, you know, everyone is now safe. They would just have to go revert to other forms of killing. And that's always been a counter argument of why bombing Auschwitz wouldn't really have accomplished much. The obvious counter back to that is why did the Germans build Auschwitz in the first place? The reason is, is because the mobile killing un units, the Einsatzgruppen, were very ineffective. You know, Auschwitz was a factory, a factory of horrors, but killing people with guns was number one, it was psychologically devastating to the, to the killers. They all, many of them went, went totally crazy. Um, I have no sympathy for them, but, but they did. Uh, number two is it just took a lot longer and number three is, what do you do with all the human remains? The, the, what Auschwitz was, it took care of all of that. It made the killers much more remote. The numbers and scale were significantly higher. And the crematoria disposed of the remains. There was a reason why they built Auschwitz in the first place. Had they blown up Auschwitz? Yes. Could they still have conducted tremendous amount of killing? And by the way, it should be noted, after Auschwitz goes offline, say by November time, till the end of the war, probably about another 200 to 250,000 Jews would be killed in these kinds of Einsatzgruppen style killings. But the numbers would have been that much lower. And again, yes, you know, would it have stopped all the killings? Probably not. But we're talking about human lives, you know, even just to slow it down, you know, there's, it's like we view it as like a cost benefit analysis, slowing down people getting killed is, is a, you know, there isn't a mitzvah greater than that. And, and not viewing it anything less than those terms is, uh, is, is horrific. Was the Air Force really unable to spare those resources? Were they unable? So the answer is, well, did the United States ever use their military during this time for other than military purposes? In other words, you know, maybe, uh, you know, Rabbi Mather, historians, uh, David, uh, David Wyman will argue that it wouldn't have been that big of a, uh, you know, th there were, they definitely could have, you know, bombed Auschwitz how they wanted. But let's say the United, did the United States have a strict military policy and we do not use the Air Force, we don't use the military for anything other than strict military targets and purposes. Well, the answer is there were many examples of when the Air Force and the military during World War II, during this, this exact time, was being used, not necessarily you know, for the strictest of military goals. So for example, allies moved over 100,000 non-Jewish, Polish, Yugoslavs, and Greeks to camps in Africa, you know, different refugees. That was directly used using you know, military personnel and resources. Um, supplied thousands of refugees in Italy with food and shelter and things like that. 
Kyoto, the ancient Japanese city of culture and art, was considered a military target, an important military target. John McCloy said, don't bomb it. It's got too much historic artistic value. You know, so good old John McCloy, who's everything is by the books. It's got to be, you know, what is the, in the best interest of the military and the Air Force? You know, here he is, want, doesn't want to bomb, you know, a, a city in Japan because of, we don't want to, you know, destroy any of the architecture or the art. So that's clearly, um, you know, inaccurate. Other claims of why not to bomb Auschwitz would be that it would bolster, it would bolster the Nazi claims that it was a Jewish war. You know, why, why is the United States Air Force, you know, in, in involved in this kind of relief effort? It's because, remember, we talk, we've talked about it in earlier classes. This was a PR um, propaganda push that the Nazis kept on trying to advocate that you see the, the whole war is all, it's all about, it's a Jewish war and saving the Jews, you know, had they bombed Auschwitz, the Nazis could have used that to further that propaganda agenda. So the response that I have back to that is, okay, so what? That's not a reason not to save point, lives. At that point, the war we're so engaged, it don't matter. And that's a very good point. We're talking about 44. Excuses. And it's, 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 a, it's a nonsensical argument. Another argument that had been raised is what about the innocent civilians that were in Auschwitz? You're going to kill many of the Jews. So there's sort of two responses with that. I, I, I always view these types of. So that's an ethical question. That's an ethical question. It's a value judgment. Do you bomb Auschwitz, which might cause innocent people to be killed, slowing down the killing machine? Now, that's a value judgment. Whenever you answer a value judgment question, you have to ask, what, what, are, what are you using to answer that question? It's always an important question. Anytime you have an ethical question, value, it's a value judgment. You're dealing with different opinions. You know, I happen to think just a, any reasonable person would say this is a clear example that you should. From a halakhic perspective, Yes, it does become complicated. Can you kill one person to save a million, you know, a million people? The answer is probably not. In this case, that's not what it is. It, it was clearly permissible. You don't know who you're killing or if anyone will be killed. Um, number two, most of the prisoners, I think any of the prisoners who were there would have desperately wanted the allies to bomb Auschwitz and would have taken that risk. You know, maybe we'll, you know, you're not definitely killing it. I'll take that chance. If you were starving, if you were abused, if you were one of the, you know, the people in Auschwitz, you were in the camps, I think probably 99 out of 100, if not 100 out of 100, would have taken that chance. So it's a pretty, you know, morally weak argument. Uh, halacha is absolutely clear in this specific instance that you would. Um, how do I know that? Without getting too deep into the weeds, I just can prove it. The biggest advocates of bombing Auschwitz were the greatest Orthodox rabbis of the generation. So clearly they felt that this was the right strategy from a Jewish moral perspective. Um, those are some of the, the, the thoughts and arguments on, by, on, on the bombings. I want to raise what's a really important question that was kind of brought up earlier. Did FDR know about this though? You know, why didn't FDR bomb the tracks? So the truth of the matter is, John McCloy, in his memoirs, which he published in 1983, claims that he sent the idea of bombing Auschwitz through Sam Rosenman to FDR. And he got the answer was that he got back because FDR said, no, it's not a good idea. 
Okay, that's what John McCloy claims. John McCloy is a liar. That never happened. All the records examined by all the historians, you know, say they, they, you know, based on the date and based on all the information, that never happened. Those meetings never took place. In all likelihood, FDR never knew about this as a possible strategy. So in all fairness, the frustration and anger of bombing the tracks, in all likelihood, FDR never got that proposal. It was made by middle level, middle to high level, people like the McCloys of the world. They were the ones who made the decision. It never went higher than that. I, de- I don't, Morgenthau probably never, you know, was seriously involved. Um, Brightman and Lichtman, they really, they go through the, they get into the weeds proving that there's no way that FDR knew that. Um, he probably, the reason why he did that is because by 1980, this has become a very big issue. And, you know, he wanted to cover his, he wanted to save his own goose by saying, it wasn't me, I was just following FDR. He's the villain, is John McCloy. One of the most, I'm just going to get to this point, and then we'll, uh, I want to get your question. This is a critical, critical, critical point. You know, historically, bombing of the tracks, bombing of Auschwitz, it's like a, you know, it's a, how could it not have happened? And it's something we, we go crazy. How could it not have happened? And we tend to turn it into a lightning rod of controversy of the Holocaust. Where, what, why weren't the tracks bombed? It's important, and, and it is an important question, don't get me wrong. It's also important to, to go through the actual history, historiosity of it. At the time, while this was all happening, bombing of the tracks was not considered by the masses, specifically the Jewish masses and the Jewish leadership. This wasn't a big deal. It's only been turned into a controversy in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I, I, I think it's in one of the, I think it's in FDR's book, when, uh, when George Bush, I think when he visited Auschwitz, you know, he, he said, or I think it was after visiting Auschwitz, you know, he, or the Holocaust, after some Holocaust experience, you know, he, he got up publicly and said, you know, he strongly disagrees with FDR's decision not to bomb the tracks. You know, FDR never made that decision, and it was never pushed by the Jewish community. It's a critical point. The controversy really begins to emerge with people like Wyman in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. At the time, there were no mass. We've talked about so many mass rallies that happened in Madison Square Garden. There were, mad, there were other rallies that were happening during this time about the Holocaust in Madison Square Garden. And it happened at Madison Square Garden. Many, you know, big rallies. None of the rallies featured people shouting from the mountaintops, bomb the tracks or bomb Auschwitz. There were maybe a half dozen to a dozen petitions, almost all of them coming, interestingly, I have my theory, from Orthodox rabbis, who, as we saw, many of them were marginalized at the time, although many of them were not, but they were not coming from the high leadership of, of, of the Jewish population and certainly not from the masses. Why not? It's a fascinating question. Why not? Nowadays, we look at it and we're like, this should have been a, hot, a top priority. But at the time, this is a critical point. At the time, it just wasn't. Why not? My theory is like this. A couple just quick contextual items. Number one, we're not talking about a very big time frame. So about bombing Auschwitz, bombing the tracks. We're not talking about, well, they had four years that they could have done that. They didn't have that. They just had a few months. You're talking about April to November, realistically. You know, May, you know April to November. 
It's a few months. The information that was happening of what exactly was going on in Auschwitz, nowadays we look at it and see the horrors and the, the magnitude and the detail of Auschwitz. But as we even saw the, the, the Auschwitz protocols, these things were not super duper clear. There were people who absolutely knew what was going on, but it wasn't like the masses, you know, had seen pictures and all the horrors of what was going on in Auschwitz. It wasn't as assimilated within the masses of the culture. That said, in my opinion, I could be wrong on this, in my opinion, the single greatest failure for why this wasn't pushed came from the Jewish leadership, the Stephen Wises of the world and, their, and, the, the, and the Abba Hillel Silvers of the world. Not so much Abba Hillel, but mainly Stephen Wise. I think Stephen Wise is the big villain here. As we've seen before, Stephen Wise was overly trusting in FDR and overly loyal to a fault of FDR and his administration. And what they, had, what they had heard back, they went through the war, the war refugee board and the war refugee board went to the military. The military says, we can't do it. Okay, they can't do it. And everyone just went home. But there wasn't this active um, questioning of authority coming particularly from Jewish leadership of, you know, are we being a little bit overly trusting in what the administration tells us? And I think that was part of the failure. Had the Jewish, and which is interesting, that's why my theory, my theory, why within the Orthodox circles, we find that the Aguda, the Vad Hatzalah, even people like Peter Berkson, who wasn't Orthodox, but who tended to align himself with those groups, those were the main, ad- I mean, again, even them, they weren't overly vocal on these things, but that's where they tended, where you tended to find the, uh, this, this suggestion. Um, I think that's a critical point. Um, we had a thought or question. Your total emphasis in so much of history is Auschwitz. There are five other extermination camps. How significant were they? I mean, thousands of people. Millions of people. Those were all offline by the time any military intervention was realistic from from the United States. They weren't functioning, if I understand correctly. They weren't functioning this late in the game. Yeah, by mid-44. By mid, yeah. By like mid-44, they were basically all offline. It was only in Auschwitz. Auschwitz was the only by... How much earlier? Film though? That's, that's very early. That's like 40, 42. My neck, these are 42, 43, but by 44, they're offline. So they weren't functioning at... At this time. When, when this would have been... When actual bombing would have been a realistic intervention... These places where it was really mainly just Auschwitz. Well, as far as prominent people, didn't Albert Einstein get through to Roosevelt at some time with some kind of appeal? Well, he 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 appealed to FDR. No, I don't think about these. He he was one who brought him the idea of working on the, the possible of creating a nuclear bomb. Um, I don't think so much when it came to, to you know bombing the tracks. I, I not to my knowledge, but I, I, I couldn't answer you definitively. That makes sense. I think the biggest failure in this whole thing is where it got stuck. It got stuck at the mid level. Yeah. Because if Morgenthau had known, Morgenthau had a direct line to hit. Kathy R. Yeah. And the level thing, I think, killed it. And it was almost too little, too late at 44. Everything, everything in the War Department was to have the second front. Yeah. And to, yes. And they ignored everything. They ignored like you thought. Yes. I think so. Troops ashore, the, the claim of the 8th Air Force that they own the skies 
We almost negotiated a settlement with the Germans in late 44 because the Germans yeah. were fighter that was shooting the bombers out of the sky. Come up. Bomber formations were going down. Uh, but I still don't buy the thing that the Air Force couldn't do it. They could have. It wasn't made a priority. It just wasn't a priority. And then it absolutely just wasn't months, a priority. Three months after we get all the troops ashore, we're trying to end the war early with that parachute drop in, in uh, Holland. And then, you know, the disaster in the Ardennes Forest in December. So we had things going on. But the reality yeah. is the Air Force, I think it was the 15th Division was based in Italy, 15th Airborne or whatever. But they were still functioning down there. Yes, the priority was certainly the Ardennes Battle of the Bulge and things like that. But it just wasn't a priority. Absolutely. And, and that's, that's the, the te- tragedy. Rabbi. I just want to end uh, a few minutes left. I just want to end with a couple other thoughts and perspectives. Um, some final thoughts on FDR in general. Brightman and Lichtman have a fascinating theory on FDR. Oh, you know, was FDR, you know, was he good for the Jews, bad for the Jews? What, what was FDR? He has an interesting theory that I, I found. I, I don't know if it's right or it's wrong, but I like the theory. He argued, they argue, that FDR has to be viewed in terms of his relationship with, with the Jews as four different people. There are four different periods of, of FDR and the Jews, and depending on which period he was in, he acted differently. So the first period was his first term. Was his first term where FDR was completely focused on the New Deal, his domestic agenda, really wanted to stay a million miles away of foreign policy and did nothing to really influence immigration. And he stayed a million miles away from it. That's FDR number one. FDR number two is FDR really in his second term, getting in 36, more like in 37, and in particular, in response to Kristallnacht, 38-39, going up to Pearl Harbor, FDR, as we've seen, was very much sympathetic to the plight of the Jews. As we've seen, he actually did open up immigration during this time. About 75,000 Jews, probably a total of 100,000 Jews, you know, through FDR's direct involvement, were able to flee Europe. We saw he, he was the one that was in. He took great pride. He was the one behind the Evian conference. As we've seen, Evian conference was, was largely a failure. But he didn't know that at the time, and he really put his neck out to get the Evian conference happening. Number three, he was the only you know, major significant world leader after Kristallnacht. He recalled the, the, the United States diplomat from Germany as a sign of protest to what happened. So you have this second Roosevelt who is actually somewhat involved and sympathetic to the plight of the Jews. The third Roosevelt begins when the United States enters the war after Pearl Harbor, where we've seen FDR's cry has, was always win the war, win the war, win the war. And he takes a step back in terms of his involvement and sympathy to the plight of Jews. You know, he would say, you know, it's a terrible crisis. The best thing for the Jews is to win the war. And that's his whole focus. You have the final Roosevelt, which is in late 43 and really in 44, when really after Morgenthau sends him that letter, you know, a report on the acquiescence of this government in the murder of the Jews, which really did shake FDR, and he becomes again much more actively sympathetic, creates the War Refugee Board, um, and one of the other topics which we really didn't cover in this series was his role with Zionism and, and his role in Palestine. It's during this time he becomes a lot more sympathetic. 
So you have FDR going through different phases, and that's one of the points that they argue of just trying to say, is FDR good or bad? We tend to categorize him. Was he you know, a friend of the Jews, an enemy of the Jews? And he, they argue you can't just put him into one category. I happen to love this argument, whether it's true or not, is because it's very much in line with Jewish thinking. You know, one of the fundamentals of Judaism is we believe we're not static. People are dynamic. It's very much like a Christian way, and I'm not an expert in Christianity. It tends to be more of a Christian approach of you're either going to hell or you're going to heaven. Things tend to be a lot more black and white. You believe in the salvation of Jesus and you're going to heaven, or you don't and you're damned. Things are black and white. It's a whole slew of challenges. You know, Judaism doesn't look at the world like that. You're neither damned to hell or you know, definitely going to heaven. Every moment of our lives is a moment where we're faced with opportunity to be spiritually successful or to be spiritually unsuccessful. And God takes account of every single moment of our lives, which makes sense because we're dynamic. You know, who I was yesterday is not the guy who I am today. Not only that, Judaism believes in the notions of tshuva, repentance. I may have done something really bad yesterday. Now, I can't just apologize and you know, in terms of or my interactions between man and my fellow man, you know, I'm still responsible in terms of financial you know, problems or, or, or otherwise or criminal problems. But in terms of my relationship with God, there's the notion of tshuva for forgiveness. We're, we're, we're dynamic. We're not static. I happen to like that when it comes to somewhat, something like the assessment of FDR. I, I think that's an important point to keep in mind. You know, to simply say he's a hero or a villain takes nuance out of it. And most people are not reducible, you know, to black or white. Some people are. Hitler is a villain, you know, but most of the rest of us, you know, we're not reducible to, you know, good or bad. It's complicated, you know, and FDR, again, whether or not this theory is correct, but according to Whiteman, to, to Lichtman and Brightman, they would argue, well, he kind of has ups and downs and goes through, you know, different periods in his life. I think it's a fascinating, um, a fascinating perspective. What are my thoughts about FDR? I want to share some of my personal thoughts. Uh, as a biographical figure, I don't like him. Personally, I don't. Uh, take take the, the Jewish elements out of it. I find him to be too much of a slippery kind of guy. I tend to like honest people of integrity who keep their word, who are in, you know, you know, overly slick. FDR was anything but. He was, he knew what to say to the right, the right people. He never followed up you know, some of the things that we've talked about in this series, he was a slippery guy. That's not my kind of biographical character that I, I personally like. That's me personally. It's not, you know, clearly when it comes to FDR, from my perspective, being, being a Jew and being a Jew whose ancestors were killed in the Holocaust, you know, his role in the persecution is, is certainly going to weigh heavy in terms of my personal opinions of I don't think it's fair to fully condemn him. He definitely did a lot to help and, and alleviate Jewish suffering, as we've just discussed. He definitely was sympathetic at times and saved, you know, over the course of his career, hundreds of thousands of Jewish lives. There's no question about it. But I do condemn him. That's my opinion. He didn't do nearly enough as he should have. He could have done way more. Many argue, but well, what could he have done? I, I just I'll use it as an, as an argument. You know, what could he have done? Look what he did, as, as we point out, too little, too late. Look what happened in 44 when he puts together the War Refugee Board. According to most calculations, the War Refugee, War Refugee Board 
you know, which was a non-military intervention, saves 200,000 Jews. Imagine had the War Refugee Board, something equivalent like that, had been put together in 1942 or in 1932. How many Jews could have been saved? He just didn't prioritize Jewish life. Um, had he cared more, you know, it's, it's, it's on the clock. Well, what else could he have done? I don't know. Had he cared, maybe he could have come up with other options. It's like one of those great, it's, it, it, we'll never know. Had he been more proactive, what other options were available? I, I mean, we just don't know. A lot of times, if you care about something, and the necessity is the mother of invention, he could have come up with other, other solutions. It just wasn't a high priority. Um, so he, again, Evian, he did. Maybe he could have done more. He certainly didn't. It was not a super high priority. Um, he, he wasn't there. He wasn't at Evian. Could the United States have done more at Evian? Absolutely. Yeah. So he could have had, he made it a higher priority. He could have pushed, he could have pushed other options. Um, many will argue, and it is an important point, that FDR and his presidency, and I think this is an accurate statement, really mirrors what the United States as a population was like. FDR. If he could be sympathetic and save Jews, he was fine with it, and even would go out of his way at times to save Jews. However, he would never do so if that would potentially jeopardize him politically, as seen earlier, you know, before the final solution, when it came to issues of immigration. He never would rock the boat, um, you know, in terms of pushing that agenda of rescue or relief. Why? Because the United States were afraid, you know, people who were xenophobic didn't want more immigrants. People didn't want to fight a Jewish war. People didn't want their kids going overseas to die to save Jews in Auschwitz. Number two, and this is a very important point, historically, it is worth noting there were no better options than FDR for the Jews. In other words, yes, you know, I'm arguing he should have been, you know, done more and easily could have done more. Realistically, in terms of leadership at the time, the Republicans were not nearly, you know, they would have been far less sympathetic to the plight of Jews. So it wasn't like there were other alternatives. That is a fair point. So number one, he does reflect the sentiments of the United States. And number two, if anything, he's the most progressive or, or the most, will take the mo most proactive stance at a virtually any politic, you know, anyone who was available for high office. That said, I still condemn him because what is leadership about? Leadership isn't just about gauging the temperature in the room and saying, well, this is going to be the best thing for me politically, so I'm just going to follow. Leadership is about leading. And this is the greatest tragedy, and in my opinion, you know, the darkest stain in the history of humanity. And to just kind of be the guy who says, I'm not going to take a politically disadvantaged uh, you know, position because it's going to harm me politically is the greatest sign of a coward and the greatest sign of someone who's indifferent at the greatest crime ever committed by, by humanity. You know, I don't know what he could have done. I don't know if there were any options, but I know one thing. Really I put my hand in a fire. I, I scream. Someone, if I stub my toe, I react. 
You know, and that was missing in this whole crisis. That was definitely missing from FDR during this time. Um, and because of that, he needs to be condemned, in my opinion. You know, is he the absolute, is he the worst villain of the story? Not even close. The Breckenridge's longs of the world were significantly worse. We've talked about some of the great villains of the story, the Father McCoughlin's, the Charles Lindberghs, these, you know, active, I would all call them active Nazis, to the John McCloys, to, you know, the, the State Department. To, there are plenty of people who are far more villainous than FDR. But that said, he was the president, you know, for this entire process. He was president for four terms, and he could have done more. And who knows, had he done more, you know, I think clearly more Jews would have survived. So I don't view him personally in the highest of light. That said, he emerges traditionally, fast forward to today, 2021. He is considered a beloved figure, um, particularly in American Jewry. I believe his stock is going down by Truman stock. I would argue by Harry Truman stock. I think Truman at the time was not particularly beloved by the Jewish population. But I think if he gets studied, who's going to be, you know, FDR's successor, I think Truman deserves way more credit for, for what he did to help the Jewish people. His stock should be way on the rise, and FDR's should, um, should definitely go down. I've gone over. I want to thank you all for coming. I hope you found this um, series to be informative and helpful. I encourage so I you to keep on coming to other COLA classes. I, was, I got a lot of feedback. Rob, I do more of these history types of classes. So we'll definitely take that into consideration. Um, and who knows, maybe our next series will come up with some other uh, good topic. I'm always open for suggestions. If anyone has a suggestion of topics or themes for us to cover in future classes, yeah. I'm for them. And I'm here to stick around if anyone has a, any other questions. But again, thank you all for coming. And again, next week, 7 p.m., we're going to begin our Jewish Essentials class. So that's the story. Thoughts, questions, what do you say? Everyone, thank you for coming. Rabbi, can I have a minute? Yeah. Oh, oh, do you hear me? Where was God and what did God do? I believe that's, I strive, with all due respect, terribly disagree with that. He's asleep. God is infinite. God can do whatever he wants. I don't believe, if, if God could have intervened and didn't, that means he was an accomplice, just as much as I condemn FDR. God, in God's divine plan. No, that's what I said. It isn't an answer. Raise this hand. It's incorrect. It goes against Great. Jewish theology. I believe. I mean, squarely against Jewish theology. Uh, number one, I think that by D-Day, unfortunately, five million Jews were already extinct. Um, About five probably, million. probably. That's number yeah. One. Number two, as important as it could More be, you know, to bomb the railroads and Auschwitz. No, he sees. The main. I would say, all mistake was the immigration policy. I would agree with that you wholeheartedly. You do wholeheartedly, I agree with that. Wait, no. what you do and, and, and that was a crime of 10 years. People are talking, just wait. At that time, maybe half a million Jews yeah. could be rescued. If not more. And, 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 and in all fairness, to follow up on that, that's not necessarily FDR who needs to be condemned. That's the entire world. FDR had to, if he, whenever he tried pushing immigration, that had to go through Congress and he would have lost. 
and he would have. So that, that's really, you can, can condemn the United States Congress, who's just a reflection of the population of the United States. Keep in mind, there were four elections during this. I mean, really three, because Nazi, you know, Hitler comes apparent afterwards. Point, I want to make this, and again, I don't know if, you know, 80% of the Jewish community, Maybe in these days it's less, but 80% were Democrat. So would it be like you have your comfort zone with the Jewish community, with, uh, a, a, with the whites, with the other leaders? Would it be different if the Jewish community were more on the opposition side that we feel that is need to do something more urgent? I don't know. It's very hard to yeah. judge. And so again, yeah, we, we, when we judge this 40, 50 years later, you know, it's a different uh, way of judging. And, and, and that question really is a, quick, a chicken and egg question. Why, and yes, historically, Jews, let's say today, tend to be overwhelmingly aligned with the Democratic Party. Where did that come from? That came from the election in 32. In 1928, that election, you know, Jews were not, Jews tended to be more aligned to the Republican Party. FDR was a super, was a rock star. He was a real hero. And we've talked about in the past, why was he so successful in winning over huge percentages of the Jewish population is a great historical question, but it should be kept in mind. That happened right then in history. It wasn't like, well, the Jews last hundred years had been Democrats. That's not the case. Jews, many Jews happen to be socialists and communists, unfortunately, but many of them were not. And, you know, you go back, you know, three elections, you know, Jews tended to be more Republican than Democrats. The Republican were, was much more of the Liberal Party. Um, so it's a fascinating question. Raise your hand. Yeah. Rabbi. 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 Oh, yeah. You know, the secular Jewish community really did not. I don't know if you hear. Really be, um, I guess, identified. So, does any blame really go to the secular Jewish community for not speaking out? Yes. Really yes. Or, or again, I, I would say the the, the Orthodox rabbinate represented a very small population. Um, many of them were castigated and and shunted aside by the Stephen Wises of the world. Um, yes. You know, most of, most of American Jewry was simply indifferent, or I would, that's a bit of an overstatement. Weren't nearly as violent when when uh, who was it when when, when Rabbi Kalmanovich heard the Regner report, he fainted. You know, he fainted when he had heard about the final solution. He passed out and had to be revived. You know, that should be that should have been. You know, every North American Jew, when you hear what's going on, the horrors of Europe, we should all, you know, I don't know what North American Jewry could have or should have done, but what they did was certainly, and, and I guess the million dollar question has much changed. You know, most Jews nowadays are, I mean, just look at the Pew study that came out a couple months ago. We're just indifferent to our Judaism in general. And that's it. And Lester has a question. Has the world really fundamentally, has the world changed significantly? Since the 1930s and 1940s, it's a very scary question. You know, we've got Ben over here. You know, Ben went through this. This isn't like ancient history. He's on Zoom. No one can see Ben. This isn't the story of the Holocaust. Is not ancient history. You read some of the stories. It's like, how could this have happened? We we tend to 
distance ourselves and think this is this this must have happened with a bunch of barbarians you know living in a, a galaxy a long long time ago in a galaxy far far away it's not a re- that's this is current events there are people alive today who are the perpetrators of this and it's not realistic to expect that you know one generation later two generations later you know a world that can allow this to happen and be so Indifferent. I don't think most people, most Americans, and most Jews were happy about the Holocaust. I don't think that's true. But we're willing to take a, a, a difficult political stance. We're willing to go ahead and stand up for what was wrong. You know, are, are we are we really all that much different? I mean, look what look what's going on in Europe today. I wouldn't. There are many countries in Europe I would not feel safe walking into. I don't feel safe. I wear my yarmulke out in the streets. It's not so safe anymore. There are certain cities in this country. Certain communities, I don't, I wouldn't go, I wouldn't go into. The fact that North Korea exists after China's full. Ben Lesser has a question. In a, in a way, what's more sinister than that, and yes, you're right, in a way, what's more sinister than that is that we have elected officials in the United States today that basically are, are spewing, you know, anti Semitic you know, and just virulent anti-Semitism within our own country. You know, in a certain sense, yeah, they're Michigan, they're crazy people out in the middle of nowhere who are, you know, with nuclear bombs, they're out of their mind. I mean, in a certain sense, that's understandable. What's harder to imagine- They're in Congress. Is that they're in Congress. <laughs> there are cities in this country, you know, you know, Greece just down, outlawed, you know, do you see this on the news? Shkita. You can't get kosher meat in Greece now. Greece. It's a tragedy. In Poland today, if you question, you know, the Polish government's involvement in the Holocaust, that's a criminal offense, as we've discussed. And the world is just as crazy. Rabbi, Rabbi. Great Rabbi Israel Salanter would say, I can't, you know, when I was young, he would always say, when I was young, I thought that I can change the world. And I got a little older, I decided, you know, I'm not going to change the world, I'm going to try to change my country. Got a little older, I realized I can't do that. I'm just gonna try and change my community. I got a little older, I said, like, no, I'm just gonna try to change my family. And he says, you know what? I'm just gonna try to change myself and try to be a good influence on others. And if, if, if I guess if we all took that approach and tried to just be a positive influence, be better people and be more influential people, you know, I think we would make a difference. You know, but, but it's a scary thought. It's absolutely a terrifying, terrifying thought. We live in a, still in a very, very crazy world. All right. Bye-bye. So, I mean, again, not to get too deep in politics, I think what the, the ties that, that Israel has made, the Abraham Accords, and, and to try to go ahead and to, you know, that I think that's a good thing. You know, I'm always skeptical. I'm skeptical of... Um, um, the Talmud has a, what's that? Yeah, you know, I wouldn't, I mean, the anti-Semitism, I'm just I'm call spade a spade. What's going on, you know, the pro-Palestinian, you know, I, I feel, and my, my, my concern for the plight of any human is, is absolute, Palestinians included. But if we think that, like, you know, it's a, an apartheid situation, like, it's just, that, that, that's not, I'm going to say it directly, that's Nazi propaganda, right? Nazi Germany would tell you, the people are trying to say to Jews, right? You're the bad guy. 
right? Go walk into some of these communities today and hold up an American flag and say, I'm a proud American. They say, you know what? I, I respect you. I love you. I'm just going to pray a different prayer. Right? See what happens. Right? Your head is going to be, in all likelihood, severed from your body. And then you go to, a, go, go to Israel today yeah, and say, you know what? I want to practice Christianity, Islam, or you know what? I'm agnostic or I'm an atheist. You have that freedom. Yet the world, there are many in our Congress today who say, you know what, it's, you know, the Jews are the problem. You know, we live in a crazy world. We live in an absolutely crazy world. You know, you know, right and wrong has lost its meaning. There's no, there's nothing that's objective. There's no honesty. There's no truth, you know, but nothing has changed. That was what the world was like in the thirties and forties. There's no nuance. It's just whoever shouts the loudest, you know, wins. It was Himmler. It was Goering who was the one who said, um, right? It was Goering, right? It was Goering who would say, yeah, you know, you repeat a lie, you know, enough times and people will believe it. It was Goebbels. I'm sorry. Goebbels who said that. He's right. He's absolutely right. Now we're just. I was in uh, Osaka, Japan two weeks ago. And when I got there, I was reading one of the English translation papers. They had opened a bar that lasted. One night, there was a Nazi themed yeah, bar. Holy smokes! And people in New York. Yeah, it was like a bad scene at a cabaret, <laughs> and it lasted one night. And uh, the Japanese Jewish community went nuts, and as they, they should. They got rid of it in one night. You know, we live in a in a world that's very imperfect, and it's our job to try Bangkok to make it. Has a hamburger shop called Hitler's. <laughs> that's got Hitler stuff all over. It's just crazy. It's terrifying. We live in a bar on the strip dedicated to Stalin and Soviet. Oh yeah, Soviet art. Really? Yeah. Where is on it? On the strip. It's in one of the casinos. Hey, which so casinos are it? Usually, I have no problems. Which, which casino is that? I don't remember. Was it Red Square down in Mandalay? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Which is it's, it's closed now. Good. Rabbi. Rabbi. People have no history. Rabbi, can you hear? Rabbi, can you hear Ben Lesser? Especially today, yeah, yeah. Is that there's so much focus. Something on here. Wrong, There's absolutely wrong here. He doesn't have it on. Yeah. I realize it. That's why I put these here. But it doesn't look like anybody is running it. Really, all left-wing I would argue the following, and and I I feel like I'm a lone voice. My 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 sense is that 80% of the United States of America feels like we're lone voices. Extremism is never good for Jews. Mm -hmm. To the right, to the left. You know, whether you're marching in, uh, in, where was it, Fredericksburg? Where where it was with the, Fredericksburg, I'm sorry, in Virginia, wherever that that place was. Charlottesville. Charlottesville. You're you're a right-wing lunatic in Charlottesville, whether you're Ilan Omar out in Michigan, extremism is never good. On either side of the, of the party of, of the of the spectrum, and it's it's all bad. And and we have to acknowledge, you know, it's almost like don't we all wish that the United States went back to the dysfunction that we had ten years ago, right? If only we had the dysfunction, the political dysfunction, you know, of 15, 20 years ago, you know, right? That that would be a dream come true. Now the dysfunction, it's crazy. It's just you have these extreme. Whoever shouts the loudest wins. And I, the sense that I get is the majority of people are good, decent people. You know, maybe you're a Republican, maybe you're a Democrat. I want big government. I want liberal government. I think, you know, we have debates like this or that. But now, like, I mean, it's, it's the loudest, loudest voice. Either, you know, like, 
you, you know, it, and, and that's never good for, for anyone. It's never good for the Jews. Extremism, whether it be the right or the left, and your point is very well taken, is that if you, if you, I, I don't talk too much politics around here, I try to stay out of politics, but if you believe that anti-Semitism is a cause of, you know, party A exclusively or party B exclusively, you're making a mistake. You're making a mistake. Hatred is everywhere. I think you can to draw the line even more distinctly when the extremism is adopted by the mainstream of a particular party. It's very scary. Very scary. Very this scary. This is the first time that I realized that Jews in America are really being squeezed from both sides. There's no proper political home for the political apparatus or function any longer. When, when APAC is no longer bipartisan, you know there's. But I think there's. Bernie Sanders, <coughs> excuse me. I, 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 you know, take his political feelings aside, but I think I, I don't think he's. I don't think he doesn't like Israel. He doesn't like it. No, anti Israel is different than anti anti Zionist is not anti Semitic. Okay, logical sense. You can't even make a logical argument. That's it's so not like. That's so inadequate. That's just so bizarre, you know. That's so strange. Right. For the first time, I saw when going to Malaysia almost ten years now, about a week ago, I saw openly the guy wearing a which you can't you can't be Israeli and go to Malaysia and Indonesia, even though they both do business. Indonesia, they go to a lot. I mean, yeah. okay, but not Malaysia. But Israelis are banned there. There's no synagogues in Malaysia, uh -huh. which I found out when I was there for Passover. And I, but I saw the guy openly wearing a yarmulke, which and and to Ray's point, the the idea of of as Jews and non Jews and, and, and of trying to build stronger bridges with other groups and other cultures and other societies, and which is why I am pro those. Bridges to Saudi Arabia and 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 other. I think that's, that's good. You know, again, am I concerned or skeptical about will these things last? Of course, but I think you know you got to engage. You know, talking's better than cheating. Yeah, love your enemies. So in summary, the war is still hostile. What's that? In summary, the war is hostile. Yeah, towards towards every yeah towards anyone who doesn't look like you. <laughs> There's going to be a group that. You know, I guess to some degree, it's human nature is we're a little uncomfortable with with things that are different. And, and that's a, I mean, it's, it's fine as you know, within, you know, as long as we realize, OK, I mean, you know, when you were in preschool and a new kid came to the class, you were probably a little uncomfortable. That, that's just how we're, you know, get I don't know, say that, that that's because of an evolutionary instinct of survival. Fine. But we have to, you know, grow up and, and be able to realize that people are, are people and, and have emotions and, 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 you know, Nazism was not a good thing, you know, and, and if we have to make an argument why that's true, you know, we live in a crazy world. Rabbi. Right. Well, I've gone way over and I've Rabbi. been yelling for my soapbox. It's time I get off my soapbox. But again, Rabbi. I want to thank you all for coming. Rabbi. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, everyone can, I know Ben has a, a thought for, I mean, everyone. Ben, yes. Let me, un yes. you have to mute yourself. All right. I mean, I don't want to hold him. I then wanted to hop in. There Can you, you go. hear me now? Can you hear me now? Loud and clear, Ben. What do you say? Okay. It's more of a statement. Um, 
the excuse is that bombing bombing the uh, crematorium would kill Jews and, you know, all right. That's just an excuse because the barracks were separated from the crematorium. Right. And you can see the three or four chimneys from the crematoriums spewing the ashes and uh, constantly. Yeah. So, and those people who were working in the the crematorium, the Sonderkommando. Yeah. Yeah. They were doomed. They they knew that they only have a short life, eight months after right. that we're going to be killed. They were praying that the bomb, the bomb, but some of the bombs should hit the crematorium. Right, it didn't happen. And in May of 1944, the end of April and beginning of May of 1944, I remember seeing these three bombers flying very low. In yeah. April already. May oh, in April, in, really, in end of May, or May. beginning of April of '44, three bombers were flying over Auschwitz, right over the smoke, the smokestack, wow. and they didn't bomb. We were all praying, bomb, bomb. They didn't. They went three kilometers from there. There was a a refinery, and they bombed that. The oil they refineries, yeah. They came right back over Auschwitz, so low that you can actually almost see the pylon. No wow. one was shooting at them. There were no anti-aircraft guns there, nothing. And um, nothing happened. So I believe that the box stops with, with uh, FDR. He was in charge. He's responsible. He could have done something, something safe. Maybe not millions of Jews, maybe a million, maybe a half a million. I want to, if I could just end with by reading the, the Latin uh, David Wyman's book on his chapter, bom- The Bombing of Auschwitz. I just want to read real quick. And again, I feel bad. Everyone, if you want to leave, you can just the last two paragraphs. Um, just because you'll you'll see in a moment why why it's so important to me. It is evident that the, the diversion explanation was no more than an excuse. The real reason the proposals were refused was that the War Department's prior decision that rescue is not part of its mission, the president's order establishing the War Refugee Board notwithstanding. To the American military, Europe's Jews represented an extraneous problem and an unwanted burden. Then I'm going to read the following, the last paragraph. In the fall of 1944, Jewish women who worked at a munitions factory inside Auschwitz managed to smuggle small amounts of explosives to members of the camp underground. The material was relayed to male prisoners who worked in the gassing cremation area. Those few wretched Jews then attempted what the Allied powers with their vast might would not. October 7th, in a suicidal uprising, they blew up one of the crematorium buildings. You know, my grandmother is one of those few women who were part of, who worked in that munitions factory with her and four other women or five women who did that. My, my grandmother was one of them. Um, she would always say, there's a little short, petite little woman who spoke with a thick Polish accent. My dad would always say, my, you know, my mom, now she's a terrorist. <laughs> and she was, and she was one of the women. And so maybe one day we'll talk about that story in a little bit, you know, more detail. But here you have, you know, little Polish women 
who have who had to smuggle out the stories that she would say, a little bit of gunpowder. They, you know, they had the courage, you know, to actually do anything. And the United States military, who, who in general, and don't get me wrong, I'm very patriotic and I have tremendous thanks and appreciation to our servicemen and women. And overall, I'm not, I'm not the kind of, I'm not the person who tear, wants to tear down this country. I want to build it up. But at the same time, we do need to talk about our very difficult past. And if we don't talk about our difficult past, we're never going to be able to build a stronger tomorrow. That sounded like a politician, didn't that? Right? You know, God bless America. Okay, I want to thank you all for coming. Um, yeah, right? <laughs> thank you for listening to this edition of the Jewish History Podcast. As always, we'd really appreciate if you like and share this podcast, or even better, leave a comment. For more information, please visit us at www.lasvegascola.org.